Our scripture today is from 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, and chapter 2, verses 4 through 12. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. As you come to him, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. This is the word of the Lord. You ever feel like uh, you don't quite belong, uh, like there's, there's something wrong, there's something missing? Uh, I, I felt a little like that in the first service because I got up here and I had lost the first page of my sermon. Uh, so I definitely felt like there was something wrong. Uh, there's an uh, old science fiction movie, not real old, but I think 1999, The Matrix, uh, that tells the story of Neo, a computer hacker, programmer, who has this sense that something is not right with the world that it's supposed to be something else, and there's some secret, there's some mystery out there, and he's looking for this man named Morpheus, who he thinks can help explain it to him. He finally does meet Morpheus, and, and Morpheus tells him, you do know something, Neo. What, what it is, you can't explain, but you feel it. You felt it your whole life, that there's something wrong with the world. It's like a splinter in your brain driving you mad. And that matrix they call it. It's all around us. You see it when you shop, when you pay your taxes, when you turn on the television. You feel it when you go to work. It's the world that has been pulled over your eyes to blind you to the truth that you are a slave. Like everyone else, you were born into bondage in a prison that you cannot see or smell or touch, a prison of your mind. 
Well, the movie takes off from there. The Wachowski brothers who uh, wrote and produced The Matrix uh, were clear in talking about it. They borrowed a lot of language and imagery from the gospel, from the Bible, in this idea that there is another world out there, that, that there is something beyond this world that makes sense of what we experience here. Now, Peter is writing to followers of Jesus, living in a powerful, rich, important empire, an empire that is noisy and loud and sensuous and violent and demanding and distracting and, and an empire that increasingly demands reverence and priority in people's lives. And Peter's reminding them of their true heritage, their ultimate values, their first loyalty, their final destiny. And it's a word that's relevant to us because we live in a culture and a nation that in many ways is also sensual and loud and angry and demanding and distracting and increasingly wants more and more of our priority and our love and our devotion. And, and it's easy to go along with that, to, to just sort of go along with the way the world is and the, the way the world, everyone, uh, the way everyone lives around us. Or maybe we react the other way and, and we pull back from that in kind of anger and disgust and, uh, and we withdraw from all the ugliness. Well, the Bible pictures over and over again that we do not belong to this world. Joey did a great job pointing out last week uh, that the people who came to see Jesus as the center of that story his followers were known as disciples, the students who walked around with him. And then as they went out to tell other people about the good news of who Jesus is and what he has done, those people were no longer directly following Jesus in his earthly ministry. And so, as Joey pointed out, that the terminology of disciples is really located in the Gospels. And as we come to the rest of the New Testament, we hear God's people pictured in other ways. We are the church, literally the ones who are called out of the world. We are saints. We are people who are set apart for God. We are the household, the family of God. We're brothers and sisters related to one another. We, we have new relationships and new connections, a new family. We are servants who obey and follow the ultimate real king and his kingdom. And this passage that we're looking at today in 1 Peter is a key for understanding who we are as people who don't belong to this world and how we relate to it and how we find the power, the help, the motivation to live differently. So if you haven't already, you can open your Bibles to the letter of 1 Peter in the back of your New Testament, page 1203 in that black Bible in the seat underneath, or if you need another translation, uh, we have those back at the Media Center. But we're going to follow along in these verses that uh, we heard read a few minutes ago. As the Apostle Peter gives a, a key perspective for us, and he says the reason that you feel like you don't fit in, that there's something wrong with this world, is because that's exactly right. You don't belong here, and you don't fit in, and there is something wrong with this world. In, in verse 1 of chapter 1, Peter writes to the elect exiles of the dispersion in, in all these provinces that he mentions. He calls the Christians that he's writing to 
exiles, and he uses this word dispersion, which was used actually of the Jewish people, the diaspora, the ones who are scattered throughout the world. And Peter applies it now here to Jesus' followers. And then in chapter 2 and verse 11, he talks about us as sojourners and exiles. We are exiles in this world. Now, that Greek word that Peter uses there really can't be conveyed well with a single English word. Exiles is okay, but it also has some other connotations. You know, if I commit a crime and I'm sent off to Siberia, I'm exiled. Or if I flee my community to go somewhere else to avoid getting caught, I'm in exile. So that's not, not the best word. The Greek word here is peripodemoi, which is best translated as a resident alien. Now, some of you may be resident aliens, you may have been resident aliens, you may even know resident aliens. That is different from a tourist. A tourist lives in another country, but only temporarily. They're, they're visiting, they're there to see the sights, someone else translates and prepares all the meals for them, and they're not trying to get settled in. You know, you're, we're sort of standing at a distance. A resident alien, though, is someone who lives in a country they weren't born in, on, say, a resident passport or, or a green card. You live here, you have a job, you learn the language, you're part of society, you have friends and neighbors and relationships. You're, you're part of the community. But at the same time, you're not part of it. You still don't fully belong because this isn't your home country. You still maintain a citizenship somewhere else. You have ties to your homeland. You don't really fit in. Your neighbors think you're kind of weird because you're not like them and, and you don't have the same values. You don't celebrate the same holidays. You don't share all their customs. Because you're not a citizen, you don't enjoy all the privileges of citizenship. And because you're here on a passport, it means you're not expected to stay here forever. That's a picture Peter says, of what we are like in the world. So, so what does that mean? You know, there's a word that Peter uses here that, that we don't use a lot to describe ourselves as Christians anymore in the modern church, but it's a good word. Peter says we are sojourners. We are pilgrims, we used to say. Exiles means that we are not at home. We are on our way somewhere. We are heading somewhere. Christians are on a pilgrimage. We are on a journey to our ultimate destination through this world, which is not our home. And that is so important for us to understand. You know, when, when we come to faith in Christ, for example, many things, wonderful things happen at once. We know that we are pardoned. We are set free. We have new life. We are completely accepted. We are loved. We are valued. But we have not arrived. Our journey has only just begun when, when you become a Christian. So we talk about the Christian life being a pilgrimage and being exiles. And here's an important thought that Peter is getting at. Listen, what that means is your Christian life here will never be completely satisfying. It will never ultimately fulfill the desires that God has planted in you as his child. 
you will struggle. Things will not be right. You will say, man, I just, I can't get on top of this thing that I'm struggling with. You will know longing and, and disappointment. Because even though you're saved, even though you're a child of God, you're not home. This world is not your home, and it's never going to satisfy you in that way. In the summer of 2016, Amelia and I took a wonderful uh, anniversary trip to Paris. We rented a, a little studio apartment kind of near the Louvre, and uh, it was a great setup, perfect location. It, you know, it, it had everything we needed. It's not a bad way to live, honestly. But there's also a part of traveling where I get to a point where I'm like, okay, I'm ready to go home now. Because for one thing, I mean, do any of you have trouble sleeping when you travel? I don't sleep well in somebody else's bed. You ever think about that? Because your bed fits you. If you've lived in your home a long time, you know, the, the mattress contours itself to you. It's, you know, it's not too hard, it's not too soft, it's, it's just right. And you get in your bed and you go, ah, this feels good. Because, you know, living in someone else's home or staying in a hotel can, can be nice for a while, but, you know, there's a lot of stuff that's not great about it. I mean, the mirrors are never tall enough for one thing. It's not your artwork on the walls. You don't know where any of the utensils are in the drawers. It, it's not home. But when you live in a home, it fits you. It fits your shape. It fits your desires. It fits your heart and your passions and your interests. Home is where everything fits. And this world is not your home. Because your ultimate home would be a place where everything is the way it's supposed to be. Where everything is what you were made for. Perfect love. Unbroken relationships. Meaningful work. Complete rest. Perfect peace. But the Bible tells us, and, and our experience tells us, that is not this world. We are in exile here. Because we have lost paradise. This world is not our home. It's always going to be subject to brokenness and frustration and, and death. We're always saying goodbye to loved ones. We're always having to fight back against evil. This world doesn't fit us anymore. God's people have always been in exile. Abraham is called and God says, leave your country. And then they're in exile in Egypt. And then they're in exile in Babylon. And even when they're in the promised land, it's still not their ultimate home because they're still looking for a rest that David could not give them. And even though we've come to Christ, we are still just heading towards our ultimate home. Because you were created for God you were created for fellowship with God. You were created to live in the presence of God with the people of God under the perfect rule of God. And one day, one day that will happen when Jesus comes again. He will destroy sin and death and evil forever. But until then, we are pilgrims. We are resident aliens. And that phrase tells us something about how we live in this world as a follower of Jesus. Miroslav Volf, a Christian theologian and writer, uh, says in 
traditional cultures, our identity is largely grounded in your family, in your tribe, in your race. In Western cultures, our identity is more individualistic. It's, it's about what I do with my life, my career, my accomplishments. I, you know, I'm a lawyer, I make good money, I'm an artist, I'm a Democrat, I'm a Republican. When you become a Christian, that source of identity, that value, security, suddenly becomes far more deeply rooted in Christ. Those other identities don't disappear. You don't stop being a lawyer. You don't stop being Hispanic or Anglo or African American or whatever it is. You don't lose that identity. It's just that another one comes in that's deeper. And so you have these two identities, but they're not equal. They're asymmetrical, Wolf says. Christians can never first be Asians or Americans or Russians or Tutsis and then Christians. Christians always take a distance from the culture that they live in because they give ultimate allegiance to the God of all cultures. So when we respond to the gospel, we plant one foot in the world and one foot outside it in the kingdom. We are resident aliens. Christianity is not a flight from culture, but it's a new way to live in the culture because of Christ, Wolf says. A new way of living in the world, but being different from it. Look in verses 11 and 12 of chapter 2. Peter gives us this assessment of how we can know if we're living as resident aliens. Beloved, I urge you, as sojourners and exiles, to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable or above reproach, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God. If you're living as a resident alien, as a follower of Jesus, two things are happening here. Did you see this? Though they accuse you of doing wrong, Though they speak against you as evildoers, they will see your good deeds and glorify God. Two things. If you're living as a Christian, as a resident alien, you will be misunderstood. You will be vilified by the people around you, not in spite of living a good life, but because of living a good life. They will think you are strange. They will think you are dangerous because you don't hold the same values and you threaten their values. And your very life is a challenge and an offense to the values of the culture and the world in which we live in many ways. You don't go along with, with what the world loves and values. But on the other hand, they will see your goodness they will see the, the beauty of Christ and they will glorify God, some of them. Because you look like Jesus. So to live the life, the, the good life that God intends for us as resident aliens, Keller, Tim Keller says, it means you will be both deeply offensive and outrageously attractive at the same time. People will see Christ and the values of the kingdom in you, and so you will be both offensive and compelling. 
because that's what Jesus is like, isn't he? So how are we doing with that? Many Christians are either offensive but not very attractive because, you know, we want to go out and beat up the world and punch it in the face and tell it everything that's wrong with it and, and we're angry and, yeah, there's judgment and it, it's truth but it's not attractive. Other people are attractive but not offensive because we want to go along with the world and we, we can't stand the thought of the world not liking us. And, and so we never say anything harsh or confrontational. We just go along with what the world is saying. And in some cases, we're neither offensive nor attractive. Think about it. To, to be offensive like Jesus takes tremendous courage because that means we're going to speak God's truth boldly. We're going to speak it clearly but courage without attractiveness is not really courage, is it? It's self-righteousness. It, it's pride. It's condemnation. Because, you know, there's, there's something in us that we just, you know, we like telling people off, right? I want you to know everything that's wrong with you. And we withdraw from the world. We attack it because we, we dislike it and we dislike the people in it. And to be truly attractive like Jesus takes enormous compassion and gentleness because we forgive 70 times 7 and we turn the other cheek and we, we repay good for evil. We bless those who curse us, but attractiveness without courage is really cowardice because we're just assimilating ourselves into the world. If, if there's no courage, if there's no directness in the love, then it's really self-serving. We assimilate in the world because we love it and we want people's approval and acceptance. To be truly attractive like Jesus takes enormous courage and compassion and gentleness. We're merciful to opponents. We bless those who curse. How, how are we doing with all that? With keeping both of those things together? Are you offensive in the right ways and attractive in the right ways? Or maybe neither. Are, are you a safe person? So that people could come to you and, and tell you what's going on in their lives, the messes and the hurts and, and the brokenness and, and the problems, and they, they talk to you about their faith. Are you a strong person? Do you ever get in trouble? Not, be, you know, not because you're an offensive jerk, but because the gospel is offensive. right? It's a stumbling block. It's, it's an offense to our pride. It takes tremendous courage and tremendous gentleness to live as resident aliens. And that's not natural. That, that, that does not come from me naturally. How do we do that? Look in chapter 2 and verse 4. As you come to him, the living stone that has been rejected, that is now the cornerstone, what does it mean to have come to Jesus Christ as the cornerstone? Well, first we need to acknowledge that every one of us has some kind of a cornerstone in our lives. See, in, in verse 7, Peter says, the, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone or, or the capstone. And God is saying, this is what you build on, the gospel, on Christ, on who he is and what he has done for you. 
But all of us are building on some kind of a foundation or other. Martin Luther, in his commentary on Galatians, says, here's, here's how you know what your cornerstone is. The cornerstone of the building is the thing that everything else sits on. So when the cornerstone is shaken, the whole building shakes. So Luther says, when the chips are down, when, when your life is shaken, what do you look to for your security? What becomes your identity that, that you fall back on, the, the, the label that you put on yourself, the role that you take on. Well, I'm a good parent, or I'm a moral person, I'm successful, I'm a doctor, I'm a world-class musician, I'm, I'm a lawyer, I've, I've made it financially. What you say to defend yourself, what you say to define yourself, that is your cornerstone. Another great theologian, Bob Dylan, uh, put it this way. You may be a construction worker working on a home, you may be living in a mansion, you might be living in a dome, but everybody's got to serve somebody. It might be the devil, it might be the Lord, but everybody's got to serve somebody. College that I went to undergrad, we had uh, an honor code system, so that meant uh, we had unproctored exams. And I will tell you, I was not a Christian at that point in my life, and uh, there were a number of times there, there was a really powerful temptation to just take the test and go off in a quiet room by myself and pull out my notes and, and fill out the exam book because I needed to have that A. That was my identity. I, I, needed, I needed to have the paper that told me, here's what you are worth. You are worth a 3.8 GPA. There's nothing wrong with wanting good grades. There's nothing wrong with studying hard. But, but when it becomes my identity, when it becomes my security, that's the foundation. And that's a foundation that, that can't stand. Athletes feel good about their skills, but you know, then they have to retire. And sometimes that's really hard to take. Or, or you don't have your job anymore. You, you, you want to be a good parent. You want to have a good career. Those are, those are fine things, but it can't be your foundation. See, look what Peter says. Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, chosen and precious. Whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. If you build your life on any other foundation, you will be put to shame all the time because it's going to be stripped away and it's going to be laid bare and the real foundation is going to be shown for what it is. You'll feel threatened. You'll be all shaken. You'll feel like you don't have any value. You don't have any hope unless Jesus is your cornerstone. It's not just believing true things about him. In verse 7, Peter says, it is honor for you who believe. Now, I think the ESV has made a not great translation choice here. Uh, the root word in Greek is about esteem, it's about value, it's about deference. And so other translations have something like, as you come to him, a precious stone. And, and that echoes what Peter had said back in verse 4, a, a chosen and precious cornerstone. It, it's not just a matter of believing things intellectually about Jesus and knowing as a historical fact that he died and he rose from the grave and, he, and he's coming again. He has to become precious to me. 
like Peter talks about. I, I was laid up for a week or so with a bad case of the flu. I'm, I'm still kind of recovering from some of the weakness and uh, painful cough and, you know, all that. But, you know, some of you have been honestly through things much, much worse. Now, imagine that you go to the doctor and he runs the test and he says, you're going to die in a month. But there's a medicine that will save your life. Now, what are you, what are you going to say? Yeah, I, I'd like to have that medicine. The doctor says, well, now, wait a minute. It, it's pretty expensive. You might have to sell your house. You'll probably end up living in a trailer park. You probably have to sell your car. You might have to walk or bike or take the bus. And you really need to think about this. What are you going to say? Like, what is there to think about? I mean, what is a house in comparison to being saved? Yes, I, I want the medicine. Everything else is disposable. Everything else is expendable. Give me the rescue. That is what it means to say Jesus is precious. Until he's that precious to us, until he's that lovely, until he's that beautiful, is he really the cornerstone for my life? Until everything else is expendable. And, and here's how that happened. Peter talks about he was the rejected one. Jesus is the alien, the outsider. He came to his own. His family rejected him. Towards the end, his closest friends rejected him. On the cross, his father even turned his back on him. And hanging there on the cross, Jesus did not say, okay, you know what? I've had enough. This hurts. I'm just going to go along with the world. I'm going to go along with what you guys say. You guys are right and, and I'm wrong. I, I just, I want what you want. He also did not call down the legions of angels and the fire from heaven. He hung there sacrificing himself, saying, I came to give my life as a ransom to rescue you because you were that precious to him. And until we see that, when, when we see that you are so valued, you are so loved that Jesus would willingly lay down his life for you. Then he becomes precious. You see more and more how good, how kind, how strong, how wise he is. And, and now I want to align my life around him. See, the, the cornerstone is not just the foundation that the other blocks are built on. It's, it's squared off and all the other stones are lined up. The cornerstone is what determines whether the building is square and plumb and true. Everything is arranged and aligned around the cornerstone. So if the cornerstone is off, the stones are off. But if the cornerstone is right, the stones are right. If the cornerstone is honored... The stones are honored. If the cornerstone is accepted, I'm accepted. If the cornerstone is loved by the Father and I'm aligned with him, I am loved by the Father. And, and when I know that that's true of me, then I can, I can go out of here, for example, not looking for hey, who's the person that I can hang out with who's going to make me feel good about myself and build me up? I can go out of here already built up saying, who's the person that looks like they need someone to hang out with them? When you see how precious you are to the Father, that, that, that you are so affirmed, you are so accepted, you're so secure, then, 
You can love the people who mistreat you and misunderstand you because you've got Jesus. I mean, who cares what other servants say if the king loves me, right? So now I want to align my life with him. I'm, I'm a sojourner. I'm, I'm an exile. I trust that Jesus knows what's best. So he is the cornerstone for my life. So that now, in verse 11, as a sojourner, as an exile, I trust him to help lead me in abstaining from the passions of the flesh, which are warring against where my soul really lives which is with Jesus eternally in another kingdom. Because my soul's native home is not here. I am a citizen of Jesus' kingdom. So I want to align my life here with what he looks like and what his kingdom looks like. And I live out this identity that Peter talks about in in verse 9. A chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Edmund Clowney says, notice we are not choice people, we are chosen people. Uh, Choice people are spiritual, they're diligent, they're virtuous, they're intelligent, you know, they have a lot of great character qualities, they're the top choice, they're the A-team, but that's not us. We're not the choice people, we are the chosen people. It's an echo of Deuteronomy 7, remember, where God says, I did not choose you because you were the greatest nation, I I chose you simply because I chose to put my love on you. Because that's how real love works, right? I mean, think about this in in a marriage, for example. The spouse comes and says, honey, why do you love me? And and you'd say, well, this is important. Uh, There's a right answer and a wrong answer here, right? You'd say, well, because you're attractive and, and you make a good salary and you prepare good meals and you're a good tennis player and, uh, That's not the right answer. The right answer is, yes, you have all those traits that initially attracted me to you, but I love you because I love you. Because you're mine. That's what the grace of God looks like. We're chosen by grace, not because we're choice people. And and that's what makes us God's special possession It's a word that means like a treasure, like an heirloom, like the jewelry that your great-grandmother left you. Amelia and I have done this kind of mental exercise a few times. Imagine there's a house fire, and you wake up and you get to pick up one thing on your way to run out the door. What is that one thing? That's your treasured possession. That's your heirloom. It's worth as much as anything else in your whole house together. And God is saying, that's what you are in Christ to him. And when you know that, when when that grips you, when it becomes a reality, we'll we'll have real courage, not not swagger, not boasting, We'll have real compassion. We'll go out to serve people for their good, not for ours. Anyone ever notice how easy that is to do? Like, you know, I want you to notice the good that I'm doing for you. I'm choosing to serve, you know, people that I like and could maybe repay me or, or at least compliment me or applaud me. 
We won't be actually serving people until we go out to serve them with this awareness and this freedom because I am already loved, I'm already accepted because this world's not my home and I don't need the world's acceptance. It's only when I know that I am that loved, I'm that treasured, I'm that secure that I can live as a resident alien of God's kingdom in this world. One foot there, one foot here. And then I can be a, a priest who is like Jesus offering prayers and blessings for a world that is going to misunderstand and reject me. But at the same time, because I'm repaying good for evil, they will still see the good of Christ in me and, and some of them will come to him. I don't go along with the world's values and priorities, and, but I don't stand aloof and, and hate the world I'm both offensive and attractive at the same time like Jesus. Over the next couple of months, we're, we're really going to dig into this more, this vision for what it means to be a, a follower of Jesus, one who belongs to Jesus in this place, in this time. We're going to go into detail to understand really the, the nature of the world that we live in, to understand how, how God shapes our character to look more like Jesus, and, and then our posture, our attitude, how do we engage with, with this world? We are pilgrims heading towards another home, but on the way, we get foretastes of it. We get tastes of the joy and the life and the love that will one day ultimately be our reality. And one day we're going to wake up and say, I'm home at last. This is what I was made for. May, may God make our lives, help make our lives here look more like that, that future reality. Let me pray for us. Jesus, thank you. Thank you for this word, this hope, this promise, this picture. It's good news that this world is not our home. Thank you for uh, the, the word that I, I heard years ago that for the non-believer, this world is as close as they will get to heaven and, and for your children, this world is as close as we will get to hell. We are heading towards a better eternal home. God, would our lives look more like it here and now? Help us to be your resident aliens to reflect Jesus and his kingdom. We pray in his name. Amen.